0: Matt, welcome to the Blockhash podcast, uh, episode 199, one away from 200, getting super oh, excited.
1: I, I was so close.
0: So close, 199, the infamous one away. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, anyways, um, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. A lot of, lot of stuff I want to talk about. Um, tell me a little bit to get started about yourself. You know, How did you get into the space? What's your story? um kind of your background
1: sure no thanks um it's great to be here thanks for having me so my uh, initial background into the blockchain space is coming from primarily academia so while I was in grad school I remember getting the early cryptographic emails about Bitcoin and and um that Satoshi put out to the cryptographic um, community and you know I, I wasn't really doing cryptography I wasn't really looking at at that as a field you of know, study but Um, It was, you know, like kind of there in the in the in the background of your mind and, you know, for the longest time, you just think, oh, this is kind of a cool little academic experiment and and, you know, just kind of see what's going to happen. So fast forward a couple of years uh, uh, after I had finished up my my doctoral work and um, I was getting ready to do a couple of postdocs abroad and one of them was in going to be in China and and, uh, in Beijing. And so. I wanted to be able to go ahead and pay for my, for my housing and my residence ahead of time. And so I went ahead and I, I started looking into a couple of um, exchanges and, and everything, because at least at that time, everybody was touting the, the, you know, Bitcoin as a global remittance solution. So I'm like, Oh, well, if it's global remittance, then I can go ahead and maybe try to contact somebody who could take my Bitcoin and Cash it out and and you know bring some money down to the the university to pay for my my uh, apartment ahead of time and I you know contacted several different exchanges tried to run up the the flagpole to you know different management to see if anybody could help um, and nobody nobody actually offered any remittance solutions and this is you know I, I think it was a bit of a disconnect between what the, the sort of the community was saying was a, was, um, you know, what this technology could be used for versus what businesses and, you know, were actually providing as a service. And so by, by then this took, you know, three or four months to, to kind of go through support and, and talk to people and get, you know, run up, you know, run up the ladder and and so on. And, uh, I had started trading by Bitcoin on Bitstamp. Um, you know and uh sort of uh you know had fallen down the rabbit hole since then so this was back in 2014 um before the the low point of i think it was around what one depending on which exchange you're looking at it was like what 167 mm-hmm. or something um and i i think i got in a couple months before before that low point
0: cool um was was there anything in particular about it that made you you know want to actually do stuff in the space? I know a lot of people have mm-hmm. some point in time or interesting um, aspect about crypto or blockchain that made them want to you know have a career in the space. Was there anything in particular that made you kind of feel like this is what you need to do?
1: So initially, it was just more, you know, I, I wanted to have more exposure to the space as far as an investment opportunity. Mm-hmm. I was just, you know, like I'm, I'm from the States and, you know, as far as what, um, you know, we had the, the bailouts in 2008, which you know essentially predicated mm-hmm. the entire, you know, Bitcoin, uh, you know, sort of a, a release and, and, and uh, adoption. And even then, nothing really changed as far as the, the amount of inflation. Um, the amount of spending that we were seeing in the states uh, on on different programs, whether or not they were domestic or, or abroad, um, it really just didn't make sense to continue in, in you know with with those types of policies. And you know, here here I am, you know, just for the first time getting out of grad school, having a real job, having you know some some type of income, and, and looking at where mm-hmm. could I be putting my, my savings and uh, and my you know um, you know my wealth. And you know, Bitcoin just became a much more attractive choice. Obviously, I was doing more besides just Bitcoin. I was, you know, trading altcoins um, uh, throughout that entire time span. So, as far as what got me more interested in into coming into the space full time, it, it just got to the point where I had been doing my own research, doing. Um, getting caught up to speed with different consensus protocols uh, or at least what the community considered to be consensus and, and you know, a, and what they were actually adopting as far from from a market perspective and, and purchasing and then comparing that with what was actually, you know, proper consensus from a from an academic and formal definition perspective. And there was just this huge also once more, you know, like there's just a lot of disconnects between what is actually formal consensus and what people view to be formal, you know, some type of consensus in the space. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just more about um, just identifying how I could provide more value. So either from a, a you know, general academic perspective, um, you know, diving deeper into the game theory, diving deeper into cryptography, um, you know, how to come up with different designs for, for protocols, whether or not they're, you know, at the, you know, more more probably at the game theoretic level, um, what would be more enticing to people and, and drive user engagement, drive adoption. Um, and so it, it just got to the point where I was while I was trading and, and obviously trading was by far the most profitable thing I've ever done in the space. Um, I, uh, you know, just didn't think that that my skill sets were well utilized and thought I had more to offer. Um, and so then I started doing some, um, advisory role stuff. And then shortly after, you know, came across a couple of the, the team, um, the other co-founders from Aleph, uh, from Aleph zero. And we, we started up the project.
0: Yeah. Were you doing like day trading and swing trading or were you just buying and holding and, and, and felt like you got lucky or. or
1: Mainly day trading and swing trading. Um, so this would have been, so this would have been throughout 2000. 15 to
0: 2017 or so. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. I've, I've done a lot of it too and still do. Um, it's, uh, very volatile, very, very dangerous if you don't know what you're doing for sure, but I've had some success in it too. It's, um, and you could probably make a career out of it if you're really dialed into the numbers and analytics. Um, it's kind of fun too. I I like the, um, I like the rush. You get the adrenaline rush from trying to follow the numbers. (laughs)
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a completely different market, right? So Mm -hmm. I I think at some point, you know, I was, I was, uh, you know, staying up way too much and, and had it, wasn't getting a lot of sleep Mm -hmm. properly. And -hmm. so then I had to really rethink my uh, trading strategy so that it would be more of a long-term or, you know, more, more about taking medium-term positions and and longer-term positions and, and as opposed to doing the daily swing trading, because, you know, if you're, if you're losing sleep because you're worried about a particular position and you're worried about you know price going down and everything then you're not doing things right so uh, it, it took a bit of time to to rethink a strategy that would be more acceptable to a um, more of a longer view of the you know of, of industry adoption and and identifying quality projects that i wanted to be you know, sort of holding but obviously of course you know whenever you're you're, you're doing something you're still you know, playing the trend, but you're just not doing it at the the minute candles. You're, you're looking at the dailies or the monthlies and trying to, Mm -hmm. to really focus on a, a longer view for, you know, what industry adoption is going to, to look like.
0: Yeah, that's the downfall. But,
1: but but I'm not here to talk about trading strategies and everything like that. Oh, I know. um, This is, you know, this is just like, like I say, it's just my experience. And so Mm -hmm. trading was, was, you know, like you say, it's the adrenaline, right? It's that, that rush.
0: Yeah, it's the sleep deprivation and the stress that eventually got to me too. And I was like, okay, I can't do this every single day. I got I to gotta find a balance. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, so Okay, so tell me what you guys are doing with Aleph Zero. Um, you guys have this public blockchain doing private smart contracts or, or private blockchain solutions as well. Um, you guys got a whole suite of things you guys are developing. I saw on the site, which I'll pull up. But tell me a little bit about what your guys' goal is, what are you guys trying to achieve?
1: So what we're, what we are really building out is, um, you know, everything we, we do, we start out from first principles. So we, we focus on the, the math, the computer science and building out from the different foundational levels that have existed for essentially the last four decades within the distributed systems world and, and, and also within the cryptography world. So obviously of course there are improvements that have been done over the last, um, 40 years. But a, a lot of the the found you know the core principles remain the same. So um, with that said, what we what we focus on or what we have been building is a is a layer one solution. So a, a novel layer one that is then powered by our own consensus protocol that we were able to get peer reviewed and, and published at a conference that the the ACM put together um, back in two thousand nineteen. And then um, with that. We're, we've also been focusing on the privacy side so that we can have private smart contracts using, um, techniques like secure multi-party computation to allow for data, uh, you know, basically private states, uh, within a smart contract. So if you think of a smart contract as a stateful object, it has, you know, some public data associated to it, you know, balance information, other account details, and, um, all this stuff is, is essentially public, right? It's all on the blockchain. Mm-hmm. But the, the question then becomes what is absolutely necessary for that, that needs to be publicly viewed? Is there some information that could be more um, more suited to be private? And or are there even applications for say enterprises that or, or and corporates that have a, a higher level of interest to maintain some additional layer of data privacy? for their their your publicly deployed applications. And so we we really wanted to kind of you know hammer in on, on this as well, just because from an adoption perspective, whenever it comes to institutions, there, there's two things that we've seen that has been the the primary roadblock, so to speak. And the first is you know the the security aspect of the underlying system itself, um, which we address with our our your our uh, formal consensus protocol and then the the second would be the privacy angle in the sense that if you're a you know a company you don't necessarily want to you know release particular details that might be sensitive sensitive data and if you're doing this on a private consortium chain that's it while, while it's all doable you still have a a general problem in that you've been cut off from the global ecosystem so to speak so if you have you know Ethereum Enterprise or or any of these other private uh, Corda or R3 what have you, the the issue becomes while they're they're definitely useful internally within say a consortium if you have like say some type of uh, data pool and you're, you're there's some type of sharing that's occurring with these the, these entities running these private chains the problem still is that if you want to have access to new global customers um, this entire ecosystem. Then you still need to have a way of interacting with a public chain, and if you if you're not interacting with these public networks, then you're kind of you know cutting yourself off.
0: Gotcha. Um, what what are some things you guys are focusing on in particular from a use case perspective?
1: So we have a, a from a, from a use case perspective, what we're what we're really working on doing is this um, is this uh, privacy framework that's called Liminal and the the idea here is to allow for smart contract developers to use their pre-existing smart contracts on whatever platform that they've already deployed their their solutions on So whether or not this is on ethereum or or cosmos or or something else with the cosmos sdk stack or if it's on polkadot or if it's on cello or near it, it really doesn't matter as long as there exists some type of bridging layer between um these other layer ones and, and Aleph, what we can do then is have the, um, the actual you know, smart contract more or less stay roughly intact. There would be some modifications, but the, the idea is to minimize the, the surgery that's needed in order to achieve the privacy uh, solutions that you're looking for. But then to have all the privacy stuff happen, you know, sort of more native and internal to, to Aleph, and then from there being able to update the smart contract on the original chain, uh, whenever there's a you know a, a different state that that needs to be you know updated or or um knowledge regarding the the private uh the, the you know sort of the, the the private notions of um of where the 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 state is actually located at within within Aleph. so so there's a high level overview of how privacy works whenever you're you're thinking about data privacy it's very similar to how raid technology operates um, in the sense that you have a, a a redundant array of independent disks these are all now normally speaking locally the in the same geographical location but now we can go ahead and take those those different hard drives and separate them out globally and distribute them and then the way that you can reconstruct the data is fundamentally the same in the sense that you have um like say you have a a gigabyte of data And now you want to go ahead and divide it out in such a way where where maybe there's 10 different pieces, so 100 megabyte pieces each. And then you add in some extra redundancy information, say an an additional 25 megabytes of data. And now the idea is that those 10 pieces, um, you only need seven of them to reconstruct the original data set. And from a a user's perspective, or rather from an owner perspective of, of who is controlling the data, they look at it, it's just raw, you know, basically random info, information. So it just looks like bits. Looks like, for all intents and purposes, like random zeros and ones. Um, but then, because of the mathematical structure, the idea is that you can recombine the different pieces together to recreate the original data. And so this is a way of creating some type of authentication to, to hide the the privacy of, of, uh, of at least the, the data storage itself. Um, now, the actual stuff that we're doing with the secure multi-party computation doesn't work exactly the same way um, as that. But a lot of the same principles apply in the sense that you have some portion of, a, of, of um, say, a, you know, the number 10. And you want to divide up the number 10 in some, you know, with, with, say, four or five different people. And the idea is that each of these people has a private version or, or, or a, a private state and this is not communicated to anybody else that's why it's private and now maybe some other people or the same people have a the number five it's distributed in the same way and you want to multiply 10 times 5. and you want to do so without revealing that 10 and 5 are the actual numbers that you're using originally but you want to have a publicly verifiable output of 50 because you have 10 times 5 is 50. so the, the way that this is done is using these um private key shares where different people have different portions of, of five and different portions of 10. And then they run a bunch of computations locally. Um, once they get these computations locally done, they can then uh, communicate that to everybody else. It's, I mean, for the most part, it still looks like random raw data. There's nothing that leaks or, or reveals the original input, um, input amounts. And then once you have enough of the pieces, for for the the end result, you can recombine them and put them together to get the verifiable output of 50.
0: Got it. A lot, a lot of technical detail there.
1: <laughs> and try try trying to keep it as as high level as possible, but that's roughly how you can think about what's what's happening with these these mm-hmm. types of uh, cryptographic
0: techniques. Got it. When you talk about data privacy, are you mostly talking about uh, metadata, or are you talking about front-facing data? Like, um, someone's name, email address and phone number.
1: Yeah. So you can do two, you can do both obviously. So you can have metadata where you're, you're not disclosing what the actual metadata is. You just have Mm -hmm. say a hash of the data. And then the actual information would be off-chain somewhere else, and, and maybe the owner would get an update as to where that location of that information would be, or they're communicating through some side channels uh, what the what the hash what we you know if you if you have say so, so the idea is that you have a message, and this message is what you want to keep you know hidden, right? And that message is this, all this metadata. But if you just take a hash of that metadata, then any and published out on the blockchain in a, in a way that's that's enough uh, a security because you have all these hash functions are, are one way, meaning mm-hmm. that if you just have a resulting hash, it's really, really difficult to do a brute force attack to find the original the original information. This is essentially the you know, the underpinnings of why the Bitcoin proof of work um, puzzle hash uh, it, it allows for the, the level of security that exists there. Um, and so, so you could have definitely, you can have made metadata that is, that is hash and could be, you know, you don't really have any information disclosed. And then also on the other end, you would, you would also be able to do like select the disclosure for particular records in a database, um, that would include like name or, you know, uh, Uh, address information, maybe, you know, age, you know, verify, you know, so you could do like verified credentials as an example, but then take the verified credentials, add in some anonymity aspects and privacy layer aspect, where whenever you disclose some of the information within that verified credential, you don't disclose everything, you only disclose what's needed for accessing a particular application
0: what What would be the primary benefit? Is it the privacy and optionality that you have to to give that information to somebody, or would it be the ability to monetize that data that's kind of just stolen from you every single day? Um, or is it kind of combination?
1: I, th- I think it's a combination. so from from our perspective, we want to give and create the tools to developers to you know cr- you know to to make these privacy enhancing technologies. Um, and we, we just think that broadly speaking, there's a, a need for the market for this to exist there, you know, like mm-hmm. if you, if you really look at it, you know, even within say the Android or iPhone ecosystems, right. Whenever you're looking at a, a mobile, um, app, there's very little privacy, even, you know, focus on there. It's still, you know, still ad selling still, uh, things along these lines. And I, I think that there would be, or I, I, I. I would be interested myself if there were more solutions with uh you know that were more privacy focused that didn't collect my data didn't weren't like you know requiring me to go ahead and share data location share access to files Mm -hmm. um all the stuff that is really completely unnecessary from the actual you know making the app work and and do what it needs to do these aren't really you know that that's completely superfluous right so if instead there was more of a a fee-based model for something that's you know more more private then i would be you know more willing to use those those types of products and and i think that you know in a lot of sense it's just a the, the issue is that most application developers don't have the tools available to them to actually create privacy enhancing applications and so then also in the, in the same way they're they are not thinking about the monetization paradigm where you know, normally speaking, it's, it's, uh, well, let's collect this data, aggregate it and then resell it whenever we have the, the appropriate approval. Um, and, and, you know, and so on. But, but I think that if, if instead you, you turn it on its head where you say, okay, well, data in and of itself is, is owned by the user is owned by the, by the individual. And now they have that option of disclosing the data. They have the option of, of say, selling it to third parties and then they're paid in return. I think that's a completely different uh, paradigm shift whenever it comes to data ownership. I mean, this is essentially what we see within the entirety of the Web3 space, is this uh, uh, sort of turning this notion of of the Web2 companies being the gatekeepers of data, reselling that um, Mm -hmm. to advertisers and so on and so forth, where now in, in sort of the Web3 paradigm, we're seeing everybody controlling their data themselves And if they so choose, they're willing to go ahead and sell their data. And, and, you know, like if if you, if you also think about it, the Googles and Facebooks of the world, very few people who are actually using those platforms actually have access to those particular markets, right. In the sense that not, you know, everybody's in the U S not everybody has access to the U S markets where they could potentially invest in the Facebook invest in, in Google and then reap the benefits of, of those companies selling the data to, to advertisers, um, this is not really available to a lot of people in, in developing nations. So I, I think that this is, allows for that kind of um, a better understanding of, of the market conditions where you know we're, we're not just having sort of the US-centric policy and US-centric design of, of uh, selling data, but now it's it's taking into account a little bit more of the the global you know, nature of, of the Internet and, and uh, you know, the economy.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of demand for it. And it's kind of the whole data thing is a sensitive topic, especially in the U.S. Um, but do you think these big companies like take Facebook, Microsoft, Google, um, Apple will integrate stuff like this on blockchain for for data privacy? Um, or do you think it's going to come down to those here in, in the industry to develop that stuff out and, and create these applications primarily?
1: I don't think that they're going to push for that kind of technology themselves. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you it just goes directly against their basic business model that they have. Um, it's true. And it's just going to take a, a complete redesign of, of how they're going to be looking at making money. I mean, even with uh, Facebook's <laughs> like Facebook and their rebrand to to meta which is mm-hmm. absolutely brilliant so now the conversation from mm-hmm. uh, about Facebook is is no longer about you know the the uh, the data that they that they have and the facial recognition you know sort of uh, software that they've you know and, and and the entire database of faces and and people's biometric data that they've accumulated over the last well I guess this has been what two thousand six is, is these or two thousand five is essentially when Facebook you know came out. Um, I mean so we're looking at like sixteen years of data accumulation and, and data collection on on their end. And um, they've just done this entire pivot to go to meta and the and mm-hmm. the metaverse. But the conversation is not about whether or not meta is going to be doing that. And there's actually no stipulations to say that they can't, they've mm-hmm. only made public, you know, all, all, all Mark Zuckerberg has, has said is that publicly Facebook will no longer do this. But if Facebook is no more and they're moving to meta, then like, what's the, Hey, you know, what's the point? It's like, uh, the, the effort is not wearing any clothes.
0: Yeah. I'm, I'm inclined to believe this was a very good business decision for Facebook, um, overall to. To really focus on going into the metaverse and pushing it and say, How you? Have a great product with Oculus. Um, I do think it's going to make this whole data issue far worse, though, because now you're going to have people fully immersed into an environment thinking they can just be their, their true selves. And they're going to be collecting data on everything, uh, everything. And it, I, I feel like it's going to be far worse, um, maybe in the long term, but. I don't know, maybe maybe it'll get glossed over and they'll get away with it. Um, it's definitely a huge need to integrate blockchain in some kind of way to kind of solve this before it gets out of hand. I, I don't think it's gonna get any better.
1: Yeah, no i I agree. So 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 yeah, so I guess in to summarize your you know my answers here, I think that it's a it's really mm-hmm. a two pronged approach in the sense that. We want to basically allow for developers to have that opportunity to make privacy enhancing applications mm-hmm. and and also i think that generally speaking uh, data privacy is a it, you know is, is we're starting to see it you know being pushed as more of a fundamental right even within the eu which i mean uh, i mean i'm not an eu mm-hmm. citizen but you have gdpr and there's starting to be similar types of um, data privacy requirements even in the states you have california and and so on so I, I think that there's going to be a bit more of a push from the U.S. side of things um, to protect their, you know, the consumers and, and the citizenry. But I don't think it's in the interest of the Microsofts or the Googles to to really push for additional privacy um, and, and to integrate directly with with blockchain, at least in that setting. But as far as um, what we're doing with, whenever it comes to data privacy, it's, it's not necessarily... Even for, mm-hmm. for application developers and for the community, it's also for enterprises that are looking at deploying applications on top of public platforms, right? So I, I think that there's still a missing component whenever you're talking about uh, the enterprise adoption and, and why we've had some, some of these stumbling blocks um, on that front. And I think privacy is a big, a big reason for this
0: yeah or the, or, i absolutely or, really the, agree. Or,
1: or or maybe more more precisely the lack of privacy right the lack of privacy sure. solutions
0: are there other uh use cases that you guys are working on as well because i saw stuff on decentralized storage i saw stuff on gaming um, are those other areas you guys want to tackle
1: so the, the the first areas that we're looking at would be more on privacy uh, private DeFi. so this would mm-hmm. be um, okay. ways of solving the minor extraction value problem using Different cryptographic techniques. Um, the idea is that you have what's called a submarine um, attack, or rather a submarine send. So what you would do is, whenever you're interacting with, say, a Uniswap, I mean, this is the most classical example. What are you doing? You're submitting, a, you're submitting a transaction to trade against this liquidity pool. And what are they doing? They're providing a quoted price for the for that trade. And uh, what are some of the things that can potentially go wrong? Or in the case of a retail, um, a retail investor, somebody's just you know not a you know not a professional, not a power user, you know, they're not running. You're not running like a, a, these M V bots. You're not doing front running, back running, sandwich attacks, and so on. Um, what are your primary concerns? And your primary concern is that you don't want to necessarily you know leak out that you're doing a large trade. or or any trade to to others. So what you wanna be able to do is instead do some type of encrypted transaction where you're submitting a trade, but that trade in and of itself is hidden, right? Or at least in some way it has some, you're hiding information. But what you do also wanna do is you wanna make sure that the, the trade itself will be executed. Right, so you basically what you do is you submit an encrypted transaction, then the consensus approves that this transaction is is valid. It's just you're, you're basically have have re, uh, done some type of Byzantine agreement on the encrypted information itself, and then once the the encrypted information has you know has reached finality, um, you sort of can uh, separate out the execution of that transaction from the actual commitment to the blockchain itself. So what you're really thinking of is whenever I send a, a transaction across the Bitcoin network, it's automatically committed and executed at the same time. Now, if instead it's more about let's just commit a transaction as being valid, wait for like a couple of blocks or or however long, you know, five minutes, you know, two minutes, one minute, doesn't really matter, but there's some delay time where you've made a commitment of a transaction, but that commitment include is is essentially encrypted. So what you wanna do is after you've had that commitment, you want to reveal the key shares that allow you to decrypt that message, right? So Mm -hmm. you've made some, so there's like, you know, thousands of transactions that are occurring at the same time. Nobody knows, you know, what they actually entail. So you don't really have any incentive to reorder those transactions because there's no knowledge regarding what the actual transactions are, are about. And then what you do is at a later stage, say five, six seconds later, you have somebody reveal the the private keys in some way. You know, like using this, uh, using these these types of distributed uh, key technologies, um, where they can go ahead and reveal. Four or five different private key shares, and then from there, everybody who's running a client can execute the command to update the state transition because now they can decrypt the encrypted transaction that was committed. So this is, uh, I think, very similar to what um, Osmosis is doing on on the Cosmos network. Um, but the but the but the idea is is pretty pretty straightforward, right? So you you have some type of transaction is encrypted the decryption keys are sent amongst some number of committee members some number of you know validator nodes separate from the actual uh, separate from the people running the the normal consensus protocol and then once they once you have a commitment on the main chain where where your your primary validator set has uh, approved it as a valid valid transaction then this other set over here this other set of miners or validators re- does what's called a cryptographic reveal they reveal the the underlying um, private key share which then allows for everybody else who's participating in the network to decrypt the encrypted transaction and execute it accordingly so this 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 allows for a, a quite a bit of um, uh, at least it doesn't necessarily solve all of the problems of minor extraction value. You do have some leakage of of information, but you you reduce the ability of um, different ordering attacks of of transactions because now you don't necessarily know who is bidding on what and the the order is not necessarily disclosed to everybody.
0: Got it. Um, we do need to wrap up the episode slowly. Um, th- this is really interesting stuff. We might actually have to do like a part two to fully kind of dive into everything. But as kind of a final question, why, why should developers build on Aleph versus building on another blockchain uh, like Ethereum, or, what, or for example? Um, what's, what's the main benefit for them to do so?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we're, we're doing is we're using, um, WebAssembly as our primary, uh, you know, essentially the, the bytecode needed to deploy mm-hmm. an application. Um, even Ethereum is starting to move away from solidity and, and, and go towards a, a Lawson type environment. The, so, so I think from, from that perspective, there's a lot more interest in the development of, of WebAssembly outside of the blockchain space than um than not and so what what's that mean is that there's going to be additional resources available for continuing improving to, for for continual improvement of those uh, of those tools and um i think that's the, probably one of the primary reasons that most projects now are, are moving toward towards WebAssembly and for the smart contract uh, layer and then the the other aspect would be um just we have you know fast finality we're we're working on you know we have a high throughput chain um, our, I think we were able to get 88,000 transactions per second with a 112 different nodes. Um, and this was with a sub-second finality now with, with all that, that's, that's doesn't include stuff that's happening within the virtual machine, which if you're running a smart contract, everything is being deployed within the virtual machine and then things are happening at a software level. But we, we, we expect the ability of actually achieving near native performance. But that's still going to take a bit of time. Um, as far as other reasons why, I mean, we, like I say, we just really take a modular approach with everything. Um, focus on on security, having a, a deeper understanding of the the math and and uh, the computer science principles that go into designing and building these types of distributed systems. So, um, you know, I, I, I would like to say that we're we're trying to be approachable. I hope we're approachable, and mm-hmm. you know, so. But but apart from that, um, I think that the other the other aspect is that we're not really trying to tell people to migrate their their application away from Ethereum. We're not trying to say you know migrate away from from Cosmos. It's more about how can you you know operate in this multi-chain world where you have access to different tools that might be more efficient, might be more ben- you know uh, more beneficial for your project. Um, But you're not necessarily doing a lot of disruption for your current user base, your your current community. Um, You're just basically creating new features that are available to you so that you can have a better product.
0: Got it. I'll make sure people are able to find the website and the social media in the description for the episode. Um, Is there any other places that they should go if they want to find out how they can start building things on Aleph, or to at least keep up with it, and the timeline, and what kind of stuff is coming out. Definitely uh, join
1: our Discord. Um, that's going to be where we're going to be, uh, you know, focusing our our outreach to the developer community. Um, obviously, we have a Telegram, but uh, Discord is tends to be a, a little bit of a better format for for being able to structure things and, and provide a more reasonable discourse for, for everything.
0: Okay. Perfect. Um, with that said, Matt, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today and really explain what Aleph Zero is all about and what you guys are trying to accomplish. Um, I think people will really appreciate it and I appreciate you taking the time. Thank you.
1: Uh, thanks for having me, Brandon. Uh, really appreciate it as well.
0: Of course. Anytime. Talk to you in the future.